Let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. We will read verses 9 through 20. And we come now to this last part of the first uh, important section in Paul's letter to the Romans. This is his summary of what it is that he's been driving at through the course of these uh, last two and more chapters. He is uh, bringing to a conclusion his argument regarding the problem that each of us has, the pervasiveness, uh, the depth, the breadth, the universality of sin. And he is bringing that argument to a close. And as we look at these particular verses, which we'll do over these next couple of weeks, the big word in the text is the word in verse 9, under. It's a little word, but it's a big word. And it's the word that I want to encourage us to think about for these next two weeks. So let's put it in its context as we read together Romans 3, beginning at verse 9. What then are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Before I pray, let me just make this brief comment. As we come to a text like this, uh, we are frankly body slammed. We are frankly pinned to the ground. And in every single one of us in this room, there is an impulse to say, not me. Not me. And I just want to remind us as we come to this text of something that I suggested to us a couple of weeks ago or so. We are wise. We are very, very wise not to trust ourselves. We are finite and we are flawed, each of us. And when we come to a text like this that says things about us that we don't want to hear, we do well to remember that we ought not trust ourselves, but rather ought to trust the voice of one who is outside of us, who knows us thoroughly and fully, who does not measure or grade on a curve, but who is himself pure and perfect and absolute righteousness 
we do well to listen to his voice and not our own. And that's what we do every Sunday when we come to the Bible, but particularly on a Sunday like this where we have to wrestle with words we don't like and don't want to hear. So let me pray for us as we come to this passage. Lord Jesus, help us. We know, we, we see behind us the evidence of this great love that you have put on display in your incarnation and death and then resurrection. And so, Lord Jesus, as we come to this text, we need your spirit to help us. Come and help us. Come and speak to us. Come, come and tell us the truth for our good and for your glory, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1939, at the beginning of the Second World War, C.S. Lewis, a name that's familiar to many of you, Uh, C.S. Lewis, who was an Oxford Don, he was a professor of medieval language and literature uh, in Oxford, Uh, produced a a series of radio broadcasts during the war that uh, were eventually put in the form of a book. The book title was and is Mere Christianity. It still uh, sells by the tens of hundreds of thousands each year. Uh, Lewis, in 1939 gave a sermon at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford. And the sermon was entitled, Learning in Wartime. Now, the war had broken out. This great conflagration was consuming Europe. And Lewis gives this sermon with this title, Learning in Wartime. And what he asks in this sermon is simply, simply this question. When, when the whole of Europe is, is consumed in this conflagration, why in the world would anybody go to university to learn literature, to learn art, to learn economics, to learn biology? The attention of everybody in England is focused on this thing that is ravaging all of Europe and that is certainly going to touch England with things like that going on, why would anybody bother to go to university? Well, Lewis puts that question in the larger uh, context. And this is how he puts it. As he puts the question that people were wrestling with, that he sort of imagined people wrestling with, he puts that question in the larger context of eternity, of eternity. Not just a a temporary, albeit painful, conflagration that was consuming all of Europe, but an even greater conflagration, if you will. He puts that question in a greater context, a larger context, the context of eternity. He says the Christian must ask himself, how is it right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing either to heaven or hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art or mathematics 
or biology. How can you be so frivolous and selfish as to think about anything but the salvation of human souls? Now, Lewis answers the question in this way. Basically, he says, people are going to read books and people are going to write books. Even though we're all faced with eternity, even though eternity is stretched out there before us, people are still going to read books, people are still going to write books. So we might as well read good books and we might as well write good books. But what is so striking about this sermon? If you read it, and you can get it online, just Google learning in wartime and you will find it. What is so striking about the sermon is the larger, wider, and eternal context that Lewis sets the whole discussion in, that every human being, every one of us, every one of us is advancing either toward heaven or hell. I trust and hope and pray that every person in this room is advancing toward heaven. But for all of us, I want us to say, I want us to understand, I want us to know that eternity means one or the other of those things. Either unimaginable incomprehensible bliss and joy or unimaginable and incomprehensible torment and isolation. You cannot understand the cross behind me apart from that reality. The love, the grace, the mercy, the compassion of the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, dominate the storyline of the Bible. But you need to understand and you need to believe, and I trust that you will, you need to know that this love of God is powerful and destructive. It is powerful and it is destructive. It ravages what ravages you, sin and death. This grace of God is relentless and intrusive. It doesn't beg permission. It breaks down prison walls. It reaches behind steel bars and it sets captives free. The love and grace of God must not be trivialized. They must not be punified. Punified is a new word. It is a verb that means to make puny. The love and grace of God must not be punified. The love and grace of God in Jesus Christ are relentless, powerful, and destructive, destroying what destroys the image bearer of God. 
setting the image bearer of God free. As Paul comes to the end of his argument, dealing with this problem of sin, this universal and pervasive problem, as he summarizes it, he uses this word under, this little word under, Verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks alike, are under sin. What does he mean by that? He means two things. He means that sinners, because of their sin, are under the penalty of sin and under the power of sin. It's penalty this week, it's power next week. We are both things in our natural state, our natural condition. This week, let's look at the penalty part of this twofold problem. Paul says we are under sin. All alike are under sin. That is, we are under its penalty. There is a penalty for sin. There is a penalty for law-breaking There is a price that must be paid. There is a law. And if you break that law, you face the consequences of that law. Last Friday, 10 days ago, I had to leave Vero Beach at 4.30 in the morning to take my mother to Orlando to catch a flight. It was dark. There was no one out. Nobody on the streets. Monday morning. So I'm rolling down Indian River Boulevard. I get to 53rd Street where there is a stop sign. I look to my right. There's nothing coming. My mother even said, well, there's nothing over there. So I roll through the stop sign. And as I roll through the stop sign and make my left-hand turn on 53rd Street to go out to US-1 to make my right-hand turn on US-1 to get to 510 to go to 95, everywhere around me are red and blue lights. Everywhere. 4.30 in the morning. So as I'm pulling over to the side of the road, as I'm pulling my driver's license out of my wallet, as I'm reaching into the glove box for my insurance card and my registration, I'm mumbling to myself, don't you people have something better to do? (laughs) And then my sanity returns to me. My sanity returns to me. And I say to myself, did you break the law? Did you break the law? And the answer is, I did. And there is a price. There is a consequence. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what he's driving at. This is what he's been driving at through these first two chapters or so. Sin is many things, but one of them is this. It is law-breaking. It is lawlessness. Where there is sin, there is penalty. Where there is penalty, there is a price that must be paid. And sinners stand under that penalty, under the threat of judgment, and under the threat of the execution of that judgment. That is where sinners stand as lawbreakers. It is real. 
It's not to be dismissed. You dismiss this. You dismiss this notion of a righteous God, infinite, eternal, and unchanging, who knows all things, who knows everything that there is to know about me, not just rolling through a stop sign and breaking the law, but who knows me at the deepest levels. At your peril do you dismiss the notion of this infinite personal God who is righteous, who is holy, and who is just. At your peril do you dismiss this notion that the infinite personal God who is really there, who is righteous and who is just, is cavalier. Cavalier about sin and lawlessness. He isn't. He can't be. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul uses a variety of words to press this home. Sin is serious. It is criminal. As I've said, it encompasses both outward acts as well as inner and inward attitudes. You see that in chapter 1, verses 29 to 32. It isn't just murder and strife and gossip. And by the way, that ought to cause you to hit the pause button. That ought to cause you to hit the pause button and say, come on, Paul, lighten up. Gossip in the same sentence with murder? Well, you know, I mean, if you don't, If you don't want to trust Paul, trust Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and listen to Jesus talk about the use of words and, and how murder is something more than the physical act of taking a physical life. When you call your brother Raka a fool, you are committing murder in your heart. Jesus elevates, rather rightly, interprets the commandment regarding murder. Gossip and murder in the same sentence? It isn't just slander and lack of respect for parents. Sorry, kids. You, you know, you're just not exempt. Lack of respect for parents gets, gets thrown into this cauldron, this pot that includes murder and strife and, and slander and gossip. But it isn't just these outward things. It is inner things. It is attitudes. It is envy. It is haughtiness. It is pride. It is covetousness. It is these things deep in our hearts. These things are lawlessness. What are the words that Paul uses to describe God's response to this? Four times in these two chapters, he uses the word wrath. He uses the word fury. He uses the phrase tribulation and darkness for those who don't repent and who don't come to Christ. He uses the word perish. And ten or more times in these chapters, he uses the words judge and judgment. Wrath, tribulation, distress, fury, perishing, judge, judgment. Must be serious. And let's do remember what is behind wrath and fury and judgment, tribulation and distress. 
It is not this capricious God who simply retaliates when he gets his feelings hurt. He's not this impatient parent who's worked hard all day and who comes home and and the last thing in the world he wants to have to deal with is some snot-nosed, selfish kid. No. He is a God who is righteous and who cares about what is right and, as we've said multiple times, who has power to do something about what is wrong. And wherever there is wrong, he is resolved to make it right. And that's good news at one level until it starts to touch me and my wrongdoing. And then his resolve to make right everything that is wrong becomes an enormous problem. And let's remember that wrath, wrath is the measured, fitting, and appropriate response of an offended party. Wrath is the measured, fitting, and appropriate response from an offended party. See, it's not impulsive. It's not capricious. It's not losing your temper. It is measured, fitting, and appropriate. If a bully picks on a child on the playground, how do you respond? How do you respond if a bully picks on a child? How do you respond when you read an article in the newspaper about the sex slave trafficking that goes on worldwide and the, and the fact, and the fact that there were people in Miami for the Super Bowl last week there for the express purpose of seeking to identify and rescue young girls who had been sold into prostitution and brought to Miami for the express purpose of satisfying the impulses of clients. How do you respond to that? You see, if your response is not one of wrath and indignation, you are not human. You are not human. You are less than human. You may be Mr. Spock, but you're not human. You see, it is right, it is right that God would respond in a way that is measured, fitting, and appropriate to all wrong and wrongdoing because he is a lover of what is right and he is in himself what is right. He is righteous. Remember John Murray's definition of wrath. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. Sin is serious. And God's measured, appropriate, fitting response to sin is frankly something to be celebrated So let's make the point that Lewis makes in his sermon. Another point that he makes. We can think that this is a crude thing. We can can think that it's a sort of a pre-modern thing. 
We can think that we moderns are above and beyond talk of wrath and judgment and hell. We can dismiss Paul and we can dismiss Calvin and we can dismiss Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We can be dismissive of them. We can see them as psychological aberrations. We can see them as misfits with agendas. We can see them as people with mental imbalances. The problem here is not Paul and it's not Calvin and it's not Edwards. The problem is Jesus. The problem is Jesus. And that's the point that Lewis makes in his essay. Jesus speaks more of final judgment and the reality of judgment and hell than anyone in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of these things. Read Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It is there that Jesus describes the great separation of sheep from goats, sheep who enter into the joy of their master and goats to whom he says, depart from me into eternal fire, into eternal punishment, where there is weeping and where there is gnashing of teeth. It is Jesus who speaks of these things. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, God incarnate, who comes into this world with the express purpose of dying, with the express purpose of going to a cross. What happens at that cross? Does Jesus Jesus just become a, a kind of a model of selfless love for us? Jesus just becomes sort of the most morally attractive person the world has ever seen, consummate in self-denial. It is Jesus who out of selflessness and love goes to the cross there, there to extinguish, to abolish, to obliterate, to consume, to absorb into himself wrath, and judgment, the right, fitting, appropriate, and measured judgment of God against sin. Jesus is the one who speaks of these things. I've had people through the years object and say, come on, Mike, you don't really take those passages literally, do you? I mean... Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about fire and and Isaiah 66 that talks about worms consuming things. Revelation that talks about this, this lake of fire. You don't really take that stuff seriously, do you? And my answer is no, I don't. Because the reality is infinitely more terrifying than the images used in the scriptures to portray it. Wrath and judgment and hell. These things are present 
in the word of God. These are things that Jesus talked about. These are matters of great concern to him. Jonathan Edwards in that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards was criticized for using this imagery, you know, this imagery of a, of a spider web and, and a person dangling by a slim thread over these fires that, that lick up around and threaten to consume the web and, and plunge the sinner into eternal destruction. People criticized Edwards for it. And do you know what his response was? If you're standing across the street from a house and you see that house on fire and you know that people are in it, do you remain silent? I mean, tell me. Is it a loving, compassionate, merciful thing to remain silent? If you're standing across the street from a house that is consumed in flames and the family is asleep on the upstairs floor. You do everything in your power to wake them up. To awaken them. You do everything in your power to marshal resources to get them out. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God has made us ambassadors. He's entrusted us with this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we plead with you. We plead with you. Be reconciled to God. God who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might be the righteousness of God. We plead with you on that basis, be reconciled to God. That's what Edwards would have said. Get out of the house. Do I look like an idiot? Do I look like a moron? Do I look like a mental misfit? Do I look like I have psychological problems? You know, there are people, there are people who have written biographies of Martin Luther. And they actually have suggested that Luther was a tad off center because these things were so vivid and real for him. Are we crazy? Are we nuts? No. Jesus spoke about these things. There is an urgency about them. And failing to speak about these things, to be under judgment, under the threat of judgment, under the threat of the execution of that judgment, to remain silent about that is to stand across the street from a house consumed in flames, failing to say or do anything. I was watching the golf tournament yesterday, Pebble Beach, beautiful place. Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Watching interviews with people like Tom Brady and Chris O'Donnell and Charles Schwab was there playing with somebody. And, and reference during the broadcast was made to a fellow named Danny Gans. I'm not sure I've ever heard his name before. He performed for years in Las Vegas. He died in May of 2009. He was 54 years old. He used to play in this tournament. He used to play with Bill Murray and George Lopez and, and all the other stars. They made reference to him. It's so interesting 
how people talk about these things on broadcasts. And they'll put the picture up there, a smiling face. They'll put the dates. They'll make comments about the person. They'll, they'll talk about the person's legacy. They'll, they'll say things like, I'm sure he's looking down smiling, having played here so many times. They'll say things like, his spirit lives on among us. I have no idea what happened to Danny Gans after he died. I have no idea which of those paths he was on. I have no idea. What I do know is that he died. I do know that he died. And the question is, who am I going to listen to to interpret that fact for me? Jim Nance or Jesus Christ? Who am I going to listen to? Jim Nance? Nick Faldo? Or Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who came into the world with the express purpose of suffering, wrath, and judgment, tribulation, and distress in the place of sinners. Who am I going to listen to? A 21st century evolutionary biologist who tells me that nature is indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose, that there is no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Or am I going to listen to Jesus Christ, the creator of everything that exists, all that you see, and who makes very clear that history is moving in the direction of a day of judgment when every one of his creatures will stand before him to give an account in the face of his blinding beauty and glory to give an account of how they have lived their lives. At the end of this chapter, Paul says in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. All the commentators agree that the scene in verse 19 is a judicial scene. A judicial scene. It is a scene in which the judge is seated behind the bench and before him are the accused. Before him are the accused. And with the law in his hand and the scales in his other hand, the scales are weighed and every mouth is stopped. There is, a, there is a startling passage in the Revelation, not that there aren't many, but there is one particularly startling passage. It's Revelation 8, verse 1. It describes the opening of the seventh seal. The seventh seal, the seals opening up the book which contains the purpose of God. The seven seals leading to the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets which announce the the seven bowls of wrath and the outpouring of God's judgment. As the seventh seal is opened before moving to the trumpets which announce the bowls of wrath, the visitation of God's judgment, before moving to the trumpets, there is silence in heaven. There's silence. Every place else in Revelation up to that point, there is singing and praise, noise everywhere. 
But when that seal is opened, there is silence. And you ask, why is there silence? And there is silence because, again, it is a picture of the king. In this case, the lamb seated upon the throne, the Lord who is in his holy temple and all the earth keeps silence before him to see if there is one voice, one voice that will be heard, one person who will rise up to speak to the eternal son of God, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world to make a case in his or her own defense for his or her innocence as judgment approaches. And no voice is heard. My friends, before you is a table. Before you is a table with elements on that table, the bread and the cup, the constituent elements representing the person of Jesus, his body and his blood, his body broken savaged, ravaged, torn, and shredded. His blood poured out the life of Jesus expended upon the cross. How come? How come? I trust you know the answer. I trust you know the answer. His body was broken so that yours might be healed. His life was given so that yours might be saved. There is one place of safety, one place of refuge as the day of judgment approaches, as the day approaches when all all of God's creatures will stand before him to give an account. There is one safe haven, one harbor, and that is Jesus, the lamb who was slain for sinners that they might be spared wrath, delivered from wrath. If you are a Christian today, if you are a Christian today, let me suggest to you, as you've listened to this and heard this, let me suggest, suggest to you that the foundational response of your soul, the core impulse of your soul, must be one of thankfulness. Thankfulness. You're safe. Someone, someone just breathed a sigh of relief. You're safe forever. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Ever, ever. If you are not a Christian this morning, I appeal to you, be reconciled to God. I appeal to you. If I could do what only the Holy Spirit can do, I would do it for anybody in this room who needs it done. But I can't. If you don't know that you are safe in Christ, if you don't know that you are secure in Christ, hidden in Christ, if you're not sure whether you are still guilty before him, cry out to him. 
Call upon him as best you are able. Call upon the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. There is only one shelter, only one. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled to Jesus. And you will be secure and safe in the one place where safety is to be found. He has died so that sinners may live and be free. What I'm going to do is suggest that we not sing at this point. Suggest that we will sing how deep the Father's love for us after the communion. And right now, I just want to ask us to be quiet. You who are Christians, you who know who you are, take just a moment and as best you are able, give praise to God that no matter the difficulties you find yourself in now, no matter the struggles, no matter the distresses, give thanks to God that ultimately you are okay, way okay. In 50 to 100 years, depending on your age, none of what you're dealing with now will matter a whit. Give thanks. And if you're not sure, then let me encourage you to use this moment simply to be quiet and to pray and perhaps to cry out to Christ that he would do for you what he loves to do. Forgive sinners. Let's pray together.